simply uh, came to my heart this week, um, and I pray that you'll be blessed by it. So I'm going to go to the scripture, read it, we're going to pray, and then get started. Uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. You can follow along on the screen. I'm going to read verses 1 through to 17, so just bear with me. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. And Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerome. Jehoram and Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile of to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Elikim, uh, Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I want to preach today the subject in the family tree. In the family tree. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for who you are. As we're approaching this season, when we are remembering not the gifts that we give one another, not the marketing scheme that the world has taken over to make this season about, not the joys that come with this season, but as we remember the greatest gift given to mankind. Lord Jesus, we remember who you are and what you did for us. Holy Spirit, I pray, as you are the teacher of the scriptures, I pray that you would give us an enlightenment that we may understand your word. Give us understanding, Holy Spirit that we would walk out of this room, not just with another head knowledge, not just with information, 
but with a transformative truth that will be deeply ingrained in our hearts, knowing that we came not because of coincidence, but we came in this room by your divine appointment. And God, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you would silence every spiritual activity that brings about distraction, that brings about, God, for people to not receive your seed. Lord Jesus, I come against the enemy. You said when your word is sown, when your word is preached, there's some that lands, the seed that lands in hard ground and the enemy comes and snatches away the very seed that's been sown. I rebuke the spirit that is at work, that is robbing the fruit of your word, your promises from our generation. And God, I pray that you would open every eye and every ear in this place, that we may leave with the seed of your truth and I pray, Spirit of God, that you would encourage me, that you would strengthen me to deliver your word and preach it as I should. Bless the time that we have together, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 It's in the family. You can put the picture up. It's in the family tree. Um, Zoe, this week, I often uh, read up the Bible with Zoe, myself or my wife, every single day. Uh, it's not actually sometimes, let me be very honest, sometimes I'm so tired, um, and, and I'm like, Zoe, look, I put on a thing, I'm like, Zoe, I'm so tired, I just want you to just, um, you know, read the Bible yourself, um, and worship, and then you can go to sleep, and she, was, she would have, she would say, Dad, I don't care what it is, she could be really tired, but she just got this hunger for God's word, and I'm like, praise God, but sometimes I'm tired, if I'm really honest, um, and, and this week, she's like, Dad, um, let's read the Bible, and her Thomas, Uncle Thomas, we call him Uncle Thomas, uh, the brother of Millicent. when Thomas was here last, he bought her amazing, beautiful girl's Bible from uh, Kurong for her birthday, and she, I've got a funny story and a background to that, which I think will be appropriately for another time, but um, actually, let me share it, just make you laugh a little bit. So Zoe received that Bible as a gift, and the very Next day, or two days later, she had show and tell in school. And she said, Dad, I want to take my Bible, and I want to show everyone how beautiful my Bible is. And I said to her, Zoe, that's an amazing idea. So she took a Bible, she showed everyone, and then I picked her up after school. And I'm like, Zoe, did you remember to bring your Bible? She's like, yeah, Dad, I put it in my bag. I'm like, awesome. So we get home, I open her bag, and to my amazement, the Bible is not there. And I was confused. And I said, Zoe, you said the Bible was in your bag. She said, yeah, Dad, I promise I put it in, the, in my bag. And I said, well, because she's lost two jumpers. And you know, Heathdale jumpers, Heathdale jumpers are very expensive. So she said the same excuse she said. She said, Dad, I put my jumper in my bag, and it miraculously was never there. So I thought it was one of those moments. And I said, Zoe, look, he left it at school, so you need to go back tomorrow and look everywhere for it and bring it, because you literally got it yesterday from Thomas. It was in a very expensive Bible. She's like, all right, Dad, but I promise I remember putting it in there. Anyway, she goes back to school. She, she searches everywhere, and she comes back empty again the next day. So I write the teacher an email, and I said, look, this is a very special Bible. She must have misplaced it in someone's bag because her thing that distinguishes from other bags was taken out by her little sister to play with, the little toy. So maybe she got confused. So the teacher said, look, send me a picture of the Bible and I will, because we looked everywhere for it in the school, it's not there. And I will send an email to the parents. So I took a picture of the cover of the Bible. I sent it to her. The next day, she goes to school. After school, I pick her up. She's running. Dad, you're not going to believe it. And she comes to me with a piece of paper. I'm like, what's this piece of paper? 
And I begin to read it, and it's a letter of repentance (laughs) from one of her fellow students. It says, that's the beauty of Christian school, isn't it? Dear Zoe, please forgive me for taking your Bible (laughs) from your bag. I couldn't help her, Zoe. The color was so beautiful. It was so sparkly. I couldn't contain it. And I took it. Would you find it in your heart to forgive me? And I'm like, this is the sweetest thing. And Zoe doesn't get it. She's very <laughs> innocent, if I can say that. I'm like, Dad, but I don't... I'm like, Zoe, do you know what took place? She's like, yeah, she, she returned it. I'm like, no, she stole it from you. <laughs> She's asking for forgiveness. She's like, why would she do that? She still was confused. Anyways, let me get back to this text. So we are reading that very same Bible... And we've been reading from Genesis all the way through, and we got up to chapter 12 of Genesis of Abraham's story. And when we got to Abraham's story, a realization came to my mind because she was asking very difficult questions that I thought she cannot handle right now at this stage of her life. So I'm like, look, we're going to start from the New Testament. Why did I begin from the Old Testament? Let me begin from the gospel. So I said to her, Zoe, this week, this happened this week. I said to her, Zoe, we're going to start from Matthew chapter 1. She said, okay, daddy. She's like, why? But we're already reading. I said, no, no, no. I want you to get the gospel, and then we're going to go back, read the Old Testament. So we opened Matthew chapter 1. I kid you not, this is what I did. I read a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then a bunch of names, like you heard me today. And I said to her, Zoe, you know what? I'm not going to read those names. Let's go to verse 18. <laughs> this is how, she's like, dad, why are you skipping that part? And I said, Zoe, it's just the names are there. For, for us to know the genealogy of Jesus, that, that's not really important for you. And let's go and start with the birth of Jesus. Um, and I think it's safe to say that a lot of you who have read the Gospel of Matthew would read verses 1 to 17. Actually, you wouldn't read it. You will do what I did. You will skip it and say, oh, that's interesting. Very funny looking names. So you would skip it and begin from verse 18. But today I, wanna, I want us to understand that nothing in Scripture is there by accident. Every detail that the Spirit of God prompted the writers of the Scriptures to put in there was there for a reason. Uh, Matthew was not um, uh, filling in words. You know, when you do your essays, if you've done essays, you know when you need to fill a word count and you'll just say a bunch of gibberish things that do not make sense because you got 1,500 words to write and you must have those words. So you're just trying to say things that don't even really make sense. That's not what Matthew is doing. Matthew is not filling in space so that he fulfills the word count that he needs to write the gospel of Matthew. No, there is a reason behind the list that the Spirit of God has placed in the Scriptures. And today my assignment is for us to explore that. What is the reasoning behind this? Why did I tell my daughter, let's skip this? It's because I didn't understand it. But when I thought for a moment, let me go back and study it, I was amazed at the discovery of what I have found. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Every scripture, every part of the word of God is useful for us to understand something. So I want to begin by exploring who is the writer of the gospel of Matthew. When you do your research, Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. I say was because when Jesus found him, 
He said to Matthew, Matthew, drop everything that you, you know, drop everything that you have, drop everything that you're doing right now and follow me. And Matthew decided to follow Jesus and he became one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. He was transformed by Jesus. So therefore, I refer to his past life as something that was past and not present. But I want you to understand the context that tax collectors were hated by Jews because they were seen as traitors working for the oppressive government that they're under, which was the Roman government at that time. A tax collector of that day, however, must know Greek. They must be literate. They must be educated in order to be a tax collector as they worked for the government. They must be well organized. Church, no matter what you're doing, no matter what your past experience is like Nehemiah, as he was, as he was the cupbearer to the king, our past is never wasted by God. So Jesus delivers him, he rescues him from his former way of life, and he uses the skills that he has acquired to use him, and, and, and he wants to use uh, the, the very detailed nature of Matthew to build an account that will be lasting for generations to come. This explains why Matthew kept a very detailed account of Jesus' teaching more than any other of the gospel writers. Mark, the gospel of Mark, his name was John Mark. He was the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas was one of the uh, fellow evangelists with Paul. And, and Mark wrote the gospel, his gospel account primarily for Gentile people, as he would often explain Jewish customs. Luke is writing to Theophilus, a Greek a Gentile who's in high prominent place. So we know that Luke's uh, the purpose of why Luke is writing his narrative is for this Greek Gentile. John wrote his gospel account to the whole world to show that Jesus was the Son of God, that people would trust him and have everlasting life. But when you read the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is different than any of the other gospel accounts. Why? His audience was primarily Jewish people. Matthew wants his Jewish audience to know something. He wants them to know that Jesus is the one that they had been waiting for. He is the one that he has, that the scriptures of the Old Testament has been prophesying about. Matthew wants to prove in his gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the eternal king, that Jesus is the savior of the world. That is why, my friends, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than double than any of the competing uh, gospel accounts. More than Mark, John, uh, Luke, Matthew references and quotes the fulfillment of Christ from the Old Testament more than double the times. So that is who Matthew is. And in his account, as he opens up his gospel, he does something that none of the other gospel accounts do. He begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew begins with the statement that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Church, you need to be very careful and understand what you believe. You need to know the reasons to why you believe. The name Jesus means it's the same Old Testament Hebrew name for Joshua. It means that God is salvation or God gives salvation. The name Christ or Messiah simply means anointed one. In the Old Testament, when someone is set apart for either a kingly uh, uh, role or a priest, 
when someone is set apart for a specific assignment that's significant, what would take place is that someone would come and pour oil on their head. We don't do things just for, uh, for the sake of rituals. There's significant meaning behind it. The idea is that this person is anointed. What does anointing mean? That the power of the Holy Spirit will operate on this person and give them special ability to fulfill the task that they are being set apart for. So the Old Testament uh, Jewish people, they knew that there's certain anointed Messiah. That's what Christ means. There was a, a Christ, a Messiah that is coming that the power of the Holy Spirit will be upon and he will be the final person that would deliver the Jewish people from all of their enemies and be their deliverer. Matthew traces the family tree of Jesus all the way back to David and Abraham. That Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, who is the son of David. You see, my friends, the Jews knew that the Messiah would be of David's line. As God promised David that his throne would be established forever. The, Jews, the Jewish people knew that David had this promise that in his lineage there will come a king. And this king that would one day come, his throne would be established forever. As a matter of fact, Isaiah, hundreds of years after David, he foresaw who this son would be that would reign in David's throne. Let's quickly go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to 7. Write these passages down because you need to know what you believe in. Matthew left these words for us so that we have an understanding and a certainty to whom Jesus is, who we are worshiping. This is what Isaiah foresaw. <laughs> so powerful. He said this, For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time, on and forever and the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this so Isaiah in a vision he sees there's this wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace sorry that is on the way that he's coming he is the Christ he is the Messiah and he will sit on David's throne my friends this is not referring to a human person you don't put these labels these these titles on a human person there is not one human being that has existed in this world that that is worthy to be called mighty God wonderful counselor everlasting father and prince of peace Isaiah prophetically sees that in the distance this child is going to be a man he's going to be a boy and he's going to be born a prophetic utterance of the wonderful works of God that we are going to be celebrating during this season. This prophecy of Isaiah makes it very clear that the son that is to be born will reign on David's throne and he's not an ordinary son. The titles that is given to this son is divine. Isaiah said that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. In other words, human ability will not bring this about. Humans cannot strategize this enough to bring this child. You cannot vote this king in. You cannot 
you cannot put authority upon this child and pick him to be your favorite one. No, 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 no. The zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish this because the king of kings that is coming into the world, he's not going to be welcomed by humanity, but he is regardless the rightful owner of this universe. And he's coming in time and he's going to reign among people and he's going to deliver and he's going to be the son of David. Galatians 4.4 says this, but when the set time had fully come, listen to me very carefully, there is a set time of God. We all have calendars, don't we? I've got a calendar, Google Calendar is an amazing app that's free. I encourage all of you to use it. It makes you more productive and you can schedule things. I've got appointments coming up in the next few days, the next few months. But we have calendars that we run by. And what happened in 2020? God shuffled around our calendars. All of the plans that we had to travel, to have this gathering, to have that. It's like God is saying, no, 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 no. Let me just shuffle your calendar around. Let me shut every idol of society and sit down at home and reassess your life. That's, I guess, for me, that's the message that I got. Because nothing happens in the world without the knowledge of God. And nothing is a coincidence. But God ordains things upon the earth. And we need to hear what the Spirit of God is saying upon this hour. We don't just flick the news and see what is the latest update on the corona stuff that is happening. We need to give time. As you said, we need to make room for the Spirit of God and say, God, what are you saying in my life? God, what are you whispering inside of my spirit? God was saying, I believe globally, church, set yourself apart. Church, examine your life because the time is short. But you see, there is a set time of God. And when the exact time had come, the Bible says that when his, uh, but when the set time had fully come, there is a time that heaven knows that we know nothing about unless God gives us revelation and insight. God sent his son born of a woman and born under the law. When? In God's timing. What did Isaiah say? The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. There is an ordained time of God. And church, we need to apply this in our life. Don't rush ahead of God. I was telling this to Ayu this week. I was saying, babe, I feel like just running away. I feel like quitting everything. I feel like just, I'm tired, babe. And and I'm just complaining because I'm speaking in my flesh. And I said to her, but I know that I cannot go ahead of God because I know that God is at work even when I think that he's not at work. I know that God is doing something and I have to be waiting behind him and not ahead of him. God spoke what his plan for saving mankind from sin would be from the moment the first human beings failed. And we think that God is after us. And we think that God is waiting with a whip ready to to, to attack us. No, my friend, the very moment that Adam and Eve fell, they tried to cover themselves. They tried to hide from the presence of God. But little did they know that God is preparing a plan. God is preparing a promise. God is saying, I have a way. You see, the woman will give birth to a child and this child will destroy, will step on the head of the serpent. And the Bible tells us that after Jesus, the apostles said, the apostles said this, they said that Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. The promised seed was given from the very moment that man fell. God spoke what his plan for saving mankind would be. That the child will be born to destroy the devil's work. And throughout the Old Testament, God spoke of his plan in various ways, through various peoples, through various examples. 
And when the timing was right, God executed his plan by approaching a young Jewish girl who would carry in her womb the savior of the universe. In Isaiah chapter 11, I want you to read the whole Isaiah because it's a prophetic utterance. By the way, Isaiah is referred to as the messianic prophet. Because in the book of Isaiah, you will find heaps of prophecies that is accurate about who this Messiah will be. The way that he will die, the way that he would live, all of the things are prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. It says this, Isaiah foresaw this, that a shoot, a shoot will come up from the stump, from the stump of Jesse. Isaiah sees there's this prophetic utterance. He's saying a shoot is going to come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Isaiah was prophesying at the time where Israel and Judah have been captured by Assyria and Babylon. They were the last standing kingdom when Israel was known as a kingdom, the northern and the southern kingdom, God brought the Babylonians and the Syrians to completely scatter them. And it was that time, it did not seem like the promised Messiah that would come from David's line, it did not seem like it's going to happen. Because there was no more kings in Israel. They were scattered, they were spread about. It was a time of hopelessness. It was a time when it seemed like nothing is going to happen. And Isaiah sees a prophecy, a prophecy and he sees this image and he's saying, I see the branch of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. And he's saying from the cut down tree, from seamless, uh, seemingly hopeless situation, I see life coming out of the stem from the stump of Jesse. This is the famous text that foresees a shoot that is coming forth from the stump of Jesse. A shoot whose reign would destroy all evil and bring peace to the earth. Read the rest of chapter 11 and you'll find out. Let me read for you a commentary by one Bible commentator. He said this. Pay attention very carefully. Let us not miss the significance of all that the prophet is saying regarding this particular verse. First, Isaiah speaks of the stump of Jesse in verse 1. The image here is of a tree that has been so devastated that only the stump remains. And Jesse, of course, was the father of King David. So Isaiah is speaking of the Davidic line of kings. The prophet saw that the things that were going to get, sorry, the, the prophet saw that things were going to get very bad for the people of God that David's line would decline to such a degree that it would be essentially left for dead. And history tells us that this is exactly what had happened. With David's royal uh, dynasty all but dying out as a result of God's judgment of his people through Assyria and Babylon. Nevertheless, Isaiah also saw that while the, the David, uh, Davidic line would seem to be dead, life would remain within the stump. That a shoot, life barely detectable at first would emerge. But once this shoot went forth, it would become a mighty tree. A king of humble origins would be a signal for the nation after the exile. Church, Isaiah was seeing that out of a seemingly hopeless situation, a child is going to arise. 
and he's going to bring a blessing upon the earth like never before. So Jesus, Matthew wants us to know that he as by the statement he was the son of David, Jesus, uh, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus had the legal right to be the king in the king line of David. By simply stating that Jesus was the son of David, the Jewish reader would straight away know the context of what I just explained. You see, we have to get the explanation, but the Jewish reader straight away knows when Matthew said Jesus the Messiah, son of David, they automatically know all of the prophecies made about the Davidic line king that would come up and rule and reign and be the Messiah. Matthew says that Jesus was also the son of Abraham. This is also significant, my friends. As the covenant with the Jewish people had first been made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 22, God promised Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through him. And with Matthew's allusion to Abraham, he's preparing his readers for the final words of this offspring of Abraham would say in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the great commission. Jesus said, now therefore go forth and make disciples of all nations. He was the son of Abraham that will be a blessing to the entire nations and not just the nation of Israel. Jesus did truly bring the divine blessing of salvation to all nations. Matthew then lists, this is my main point and I finish. Matthew then lists the generations from Abraham to Joseph. You might be thinking, Yo-Yo, why on earth are you preaching on a gene- genealogy list? Yo-Yo, when I read that, I always skip that list because they don't mean anything. They could possibly mean nothing than a genealogy list. Why are you preaching prior to Christmas this very thing? Why did Matthew start with the genealogy of Jesus in his gospel? Because he knows his Jewish audience. That they would want to know if Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Matthew arranges the list of generations in three three groups of 14, as Matthew chapter 117 tells us. He organizes it in 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations. And I did my research and I said, why did Matthew do this? Because to get the number 14, he cut out a lot of kings and a lot of people from the list. And many commentators said, well, because 14, remember in Hebrew, uh, in the Jewish, among the Jewish culture, Jewish nation, numbers are very significant. Numbers are very important. But what does the number 14 mean? And many commentators said, uh, it, means, it doesn't really mean, we can't read much into it. But they said 14 is the exact numerical value of the name David in Hebrew. It comes to 14. So they were saying maybe he was emphasizing that David, that the kingly line that's coming from the root of David is really Jesus. Maybe he's trying to like draw in the point. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I I see that. I get that, but I wasn't satisfied with that. And I began to just think for myself, when did I remember the number 14 before? When was the number 14 significant? (laughs) I pray that this will bless you. In the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12, God commands Moses in the first month of this very month, on the 14th day, you are to take the lamb and you are to slaughter it. And take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of every Hebrew house. And I'm going to pass over the nation and every nation that the blood 
is not upon, the blood of this innocent lamb is not upon, I will bring execution of the firstborn child. But when the angel of death comes and sees the blood, I will pass over that house. God commands Moses, take a lamb, every family, and take the lamb on the first month of the 10th day and keep the lamb with you until day 14. And then day 14 is when you kill the lamb. Church, perhaps Matthew, who knows his audience are Jewish people, know their numbers and know what the significance of the Passover day, the 14th day of the month, perhaps he's, he's in, a, in a hidden way conveying, hey, he is the Passover lamb. Hey, he is the one that comes to shed his blood for your sins and my sins. He's not only the king, he's not only the Messiah, he is the lamb that's going to be slaughtered. A concept in the Jewish mind that they could not fathom. How could the king come and deliver us and at the same time die? They expected him to rule and reign forever. I believe in an encrypted way that the Jewish people would not find how to know is to show them that Jesus is the Passover lamb. What we see in the genealogy list of Matthew is something that would have shocked the Jews who read the list. This is my final point. Matthew does something very unusual in this list because you're just reading names. You're like, yeah, I get it. There's weird, funny names. What's the point? You see, Luke also makes a list in Luke chapter 3. You can see that list as well. But Luke traces the lineage of Christ all the way back to Adam. When we compare the the two lists, we see two significant changes from Matthew's list um, and Luke's list. First, significant difference we see is that Matthew cut some people out and he skipped over some generations. It's as if Matthew said, nope, I don't want to remember that person in the history of Israel. I mean, we need to forget that person. Let's add this person. And he intentionally cut out some people and he made it so that it will be 14 generations in each period of Israel's history. I guess he wanted to neatly put batches of 14 in order to convey something. Second, Matthew has something in his list that Luke doesn't have. And it's very rare in any genealogy list that the Jewish people had. He did something that was very rare. And if he's writing to Jewish audience, it confused me as to why he did this particular thing. What did Matthew do? He included four women of the Old Testament and the fifth one. Five being the number of grace according to the Hebrews and included Mary as the fifth woman in the genealogy of the Lord and Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Why is this shocking, church? Because men were almost always named in genealogy records. And if a woman was ever mentioned in any genealogy record, it would be woman like Sarah, Women like Rebecca, women like Rachel and Leah, women of high uh, standing, women that did significant things, women that were honored and respected. Sarah was the mother of, of the first mother of the promised nation, the promised child Isaac. <laughs> what is shocking in this genealogy of Matthew is that he records four women who would not normally be mentioned. He records the names of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. This would have shocked. You see, you read it, you're like, yeah, 
Yeah, so the mother of, yeah, so what's a big, what's a big deal? A Jewish person reading that, they'll be shocked. They'll be like, how dare he? Why is he listing these people to trace the genealogy of the Messiah, the king of the Jews? You see, Tamar, her story is in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar is, a, is widowed twice. And Tamar's father-in-law, he promises her that the third child that he had, that he will give her to marriage to her, because the two husbands that she married died. He said, I promise you that you, you'll be betrothed to him when he's of age. And he lies on his promise and he deserts Tamar. She goes back to live with her parents and he doesn't fulfill his promise. So one day she hears that he's coming to the region that she is in. So what she does is she disguises and pretends to be a prostitute. She dresses like one. She wears a face covering so he doesn't recognize who she is. And she waits for him knowing her father-in-law Judah and she tricks him. And him thinking that she's a prostitute, he lays with her, he sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. So before he asked her, can I sleep with you, he does, she does something very smart. She said, she knows who he is, but he doesn't know who she is. She's disguising herself. She says to her, what are you going to give me in exchange for me sleeping with you? And he said, I will give you a, a, a cattle, I'll give you a sheep, or one particular cattle. And she said, all right, when you get that, what can I hold as a guarantee so that I know you're going to fulfill your promise? Because she knows Judah was lie, has lied to her before. So she said, give me all of your belongings that you have now. Give me this, this, and this. And he gives it to her. And what Tamar does is she takes it and she runs and she doesn't, never meets him again. And she gives birth. When, she became, when it became obvious to her family that she was pregnant, they... The word went out and Judah heard that her, his daughter-in-law that was married to two of his children is now pregnant and she was guilty of prostitution. He got angry and he said, how dare she? And he went to burn her. He said, I'm going to burn her alive. And she did something very clever. She said, um, before you do that, Judah, the person who made me pregnant is the person whom these items belong to. So she sends the items to him. And she said, if you recognize whom these items belong to, that's the person that made me pregnant. And he sees the items and he repents. That was Tamar. She was added in the lineage of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Rahab was the next one, Joshua chapter 2. Rahab didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. In fact, God made a promise that no Moabite will enter my council for 10 generations. When anyone marries a Moabite for 10 generations, they shall not enter my council. There was a curse upon the Moabites. There were idol worshippers. There were pagan worshippers. But when Naomi and her family went, to, went out of Bethlehem into the land where the Moabites were living... When her husband died that she married, 
Naomi's son, Ruth said, when Naomi got ready to return to Bethlehem, Ruth said one particular thing. She said, I will go where you go, Naomi. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And she left behind her family. She left behind her heritage. She left behind her culture because she was convinced that the God of Naomi is the true living God. You see, church, when you are convinced who Jesus is, who God is, when your eyes are open, you will leave behind everything else, no matter the cost. You see, her sister didn't have that revelation. She said, no, I'm staying with my family. But Ruth understood something that her sister did not understand. She said, I'm going with you, Naomi. Ruth abandoned her family and the gods that she grew up familiar with to follow the true living God. She went on to marry Boaz and became the mother of Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Little did she know that a Moabite, a Gentile, an outsider, an outcast, a cursed person would one day be the great-grandmother of King David in whom will be the kingly line of Christ. The next and last person we'll look at is Bathsheba. Matthew didn't even name Bathsheba. (laughs) Listen to how he said it. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother, he doesn't name her, had been Uriah's wife. (laughs) He wants to remind them of the history that this woman... That, that slept with David, that gave birth to Solomon, who was the second king after David, his son. She was once married to a man named Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite. They were not Jewish people. Another Gentile in the lineage of Christ. You know the story of Bathsheba. She was taking a bath and David was looking when he should be warring. And because he found himself in a place where he was exposed to temptation he looked and he didn't turn away he kept looking and he and he went and jumped on the impulses of his flesh and he said i want that woman and invited her in and she he slept with her and the child was the result of that and instead of confessing repenting and turning david decides to go the route that adam and eve did the route his forefathers the first human beings did which is to hide from god to conceal his sin and to live in an unrepentant state So what happened? He plots the execution of the husband of Uriah. Rather than repenting and confessing, he plots the murder of the husband. So he takes him out. So it looks like I married her because her husband is already gone. But you have to understand something about God. God is a justice God. (laughs) No one knew what was going on, but God is watching. He gives David a year to repent. David just lives his life. And in Psalm 32, he tells us, I was burning in agony. I was so distressed. I hated every day. I mean, read it. He talks about the agony. Even my bones were crushed because I know my guilt. It stands before me every day. And then finally, God sends a man named Nathan, a prophet Nathan. He confronts him of his sin. And he humbles himself. He repents, Psalm 51. And God forgives him and he heals him she was in the lineage of christ an adult adulterous woman 
You see, church, these four women that Matthew mentions are Gentile and had horrible reputations. You know, since Matthew cut some people from his genealogy list, you would think surely he would not include the mention of these Gentile women. Surely they should have been, you know, the people that were left out and he should have included people like heroic people like Gideon and all these people. Why did Matthew include these women to a Jewish audience? Matthew is surely saying, Morris said this, Matthew is surely saying that the gospel is for all people, not Jews only, and that the gospel is for sinners. It is a sinful world and Matthew is writing about grace. In the family of tree, in the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah, you have a murderer, you have someone who committed incest, you have rape, you have adultery, you have prostitution, not to mention King, King Manasseh that he also included in the list. Manasseh, the most horrible king that has ever led the people of God. He sacrificed his children. He killed many innocent lives. He got an idol worship. This is, how, this is how prideful he was. And he placed it in the temple of the living God. And the, and the priest came and they begged him and he refused to listen. And he went and he did horrible and wicked things. So God executed judgment on Manasseh and they took a hook in his nose, the Assyrians, and they captured him in his distress. The Bible says he cried out to God. You see, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how, what kind of mess you think you're in, when you cry out to God, God hears. When you humble yourself and admit that your way is not the right way, when you admit that my way, God, is against your way, God is ready if he can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive every single person in this room. God's grace is all throughout the Bible in every story. Matthew is showing us that the Jews, showing the Jews that Jesus is not only for the Jews, but for all people. That God delivered and then used sinful fallen people. They are all in the family tree of Jesus. And that is one of the things that Christmas reminds us. This is not hidden. The Holy Spirit wants you and I to know they are in the family line of Jesus because God displayed His grace upon the wicked. He displayed His grace upon the horrible crimes, sins of people. When they humbled themselves, God said, I engraft you now into my family. Christmas reminds us that no one is too far away to be engrafted into the family tree of Jesus. Christmas reminds us that Jesus died upon a tree and became the vine so that you and I can be the branches that are grafted in. We all have access to be in the family tree of Jesus. I don't care who you are. I don't care what mess you did last night. You are included in the family tree of Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Matthew is yelling at us today. He's screaming out, you're in the family tree. You're included. You belong to the family of God. Jesus came to save and seek those who are lost that's what the gospel writers tell us, that he came to save and seek the lost. Jesus came. Jesus came for those who knew, 
who knew they were sinners, not those who thought they were self-righteous, but for those who knew they were fallen, for those who knew they were broken. That's why Jesus came. He is, he is, he is the shoot that came out of the, the stump of Jesse. He is the prophesied Messiah in the very first pages of the gospel of Matthew before the birth account of Christ. In verse 18, we see a revelation of the genealogy of the Savior of the world. And Matthew is telling the Jewish brothers and sisters, Jesus is not just for you and me. Jesus is not just for my people. He's for the entire world. And Jesus came to save sinners. That's what this genealogy list tells us. That Jesus came to deliver sinners. That we can be engrafted into the family tree of Christ. Family genealogies were a big thing to the Jewish people. They got the sense of worth and belonging from the family they belonged to. The access that they had. Their destiny was connected to who their family was. You can only be a priest if your family lineage is that of Aaron. You can't be a priest if you're from another lineage. You had to be from the tribe of Aaron. From the Levites. I'm telling you right now. As we are observing Christmas, I want you to know His grace is big. Paul said, I was shown grace and mercy. Though I was the chief among sinners, though I did not deserve the mercy of God, He displayed His unlimited patience in my life. The announcement of the gospel writer before the coming of Jesus is, hey, this Savior, this Messiah that is coming, He is a merciful Savior. He is a forgiving, compassionate Savior. When you humble yourself, church, this is the message of the gospel. This is the good news that we preach in this season. No matter who the person you're speaking to is, no matter what they've done, they're never far for the gospel. They're never far for the forgiveness of God. They're never far for the mercy of God. Come on. I want you right now, I want you right now to lift your hands and begin to worship this Savior that has included your name in His, in his family tree. He's included your name. You belong to the family of God. We are engrafted. We are in the family tree. We are in the family of God because of Jesus' mercy, because of Jesus' forgiveness, because of Jesus' compassion, because of Jesus' sacrifice. That's what Christmas reminds me. It reminds me that a Savior is born. When the angel told Mary, he will deliver his people from their sins. He will rescue them. I don't know who you are. I don't know why you came today. I don't know what is going on in your life. But I do know one thing. That every time God drops a word in my heart, it's never a coincidence. You came here by the divine appointment of God. And he wants you to know, my daughter, my son, you are not excluded. You have not done too much to be disqualified for my forgiveness, for my grace. Humble yourself today. My assignment for you, whoever you are, is to go home today, to get on your knees and to cry out, to go back to your first love. If Jesus is your first love, I want you to just be, give, give him the greatest worship of your heart. 
Begin to thank him in this season. Don't be distracted by the gifts and the gatherings and the food. Please take a moment in your busy schedule this season to say, God, I thank you that your grace made me sufficient. I wasn't worthy to be in the family tree, God. You didn't cancel me, Lord. And we live in a cancel culture. When you do one thing wrong and you're canceled, God is not like that, my friend. God is merciful. God is gracious. He only asks us to humble ourselves, to turn from our wickedness and to follow Him and to make Him the Lord and Savior of our lives. Lord, I thank You for this word that You've given us today. I thank You that You have left us a deposit of truth even in the things that seem repetitive. Lord, your word is life. and You are telling us through your genealogy, Lord Jesus, that your grace is sufficient, that your grace covers the sins of man, no matter who we are, God. Lord Jesus, you didn't come just for the Jewish people. You came for the Gentiles. You came for the outcast. And you were placed upon that tree. And Paul tells us, cursed is he who, who is hung on the tree. And you became cursed for us, Jesus, so that we may be set free, so that we may be delivered. Freedom, my friend, is only found in Jesus. Freedom is not you being outside of the prison bars, I'm telling you, there is the most free people inside of the prison because Jesus is the Lord of their lives. The biggest way that we can be free is to make Jesus Lord of our life. And if you're in this room and you're saying, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to make him the king of my life. Yo, yo, I'm in this room right now. I've come to church many times, but God is doing a work in my heart today. If that's you, I want you to come and speak to me after the service. And I want to explain to you what salvation is. I want to explain to you what it means to give your life completely, deliver your life over to Him and follow Him with all of your heart, forsaking all so that you may gain Him. That's what Paul said. I count all as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Spirit of God, I thank you for what you've done in our hearts today. Remind us this truth this Christmas season. Bless the rest of this week as we approach to the day of your birth. Bless the rest of this week, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. 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 Awesome, guys. God bless you. Please get your tickets. Son, uh, on Friday, I've got an amazing word that I want to share with you. I want to see all of you. Listen, if you bring a friend that's not a Christian, not a friend from another church, (laughs) a friend that's not a Christian, they come for free because we want people to hear the gospel. Amen? God bless and have a wonderful week.